Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, COP26, the parents' revolt in Virginia and the cancellation of Terry Gilliam. So COP26 kicked off at the weekend. The world leaders have been in Glasgow this week trying to agree a framework for reducing carbon emissions and potentially limiting climate change. Tom, I mean, should we start at the beginning? Should we start? There's been a lot of commentary on how our leaders got there, so to speak. Well, (laughs) hypocrisy always abounds at these climate conferences. Of course, there was a lot of discussion about the fleets of private jets delivering all of the world leaders there to intone piously about climate change in the process kind of emitting more carbon than a lot of people probably muster in a lifetime. <laughs> Joe Biden's 85 car motorcade that was ferrying him around Rome and then into the UK. And a lot of discussion also about how um, the sponsors, I think, of COP26 had contributed a huge amount <laughs> to climate change <laughs> and all the rest of it. Now, it's not to say in pointing out this hypocrisy that um, everyone should live as miserable a life as they want to impose yeah. on everyone else. But the reason I think it's significant is because of the fact that it lets slip the fact that we all know, which is that the costs of eco-austerity will not be borne evenly. Mm. We all know this. I mean, even in terms of the people who will either be able to kind of muster some kind of excuse or exemption to these kinds of restrictions through to the people who will be able to pay the kind of exorbitant taxes or whatever that will try and price people out of flying or any other kind of activity or just would be able to, you know, do some sort of silly gesture like getting a bunch of trees planted to yeah. offset their private jet flights. I think um, Elton John did on behalf of um, Harry and Meghan. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why the, the reason the hypocrisy is important, I think, is because not only is this spectacle, this kind of decadent spectacle of excess, really embarrassing for a bunch of people who are trying to preach a much more kind of austere lifestyle, really, for the rest of us, but it just completely explodes the idea that with climate change we're all in it together we all know who the winners and losers are going to be if we accept the kind of punishing policies that are being pushed at places like cop 26 not obviously embrace on the whole because you know national interests and domestic Mm. interests always play a role and often the pledges don't meet the ambition such as it is but i think that's why the hypocrisy matters so much definitely just demonstrates that fact that we all know but is often not said explicitly yeah ella what have you made of it there's also so much of the commentary has been so kind of brazenly superficial. Yeah. You know, people getting genuinely upset about the fact that Boris Johnson fell asleep 
or that he did or seemed to fall asleep or that he didn't wear a mask. You know, like the worst thing that he did was that he didn't wear a mask sat next to David Attenborough. It's, it was all about the messaging and the kind of image of the um, conference. Indeed, you know, but actually worse than Boris Johnson flying back early to um, and, you know, leaving COP26 was the the papers picked up the fact that he flew back early to meet a climate denier like Charles Moore. <laughs> so it's like if he'd flown back early for a private lunch at the Garrett Club with Greta Thunberg, it would yeah. probably been fine. Don't think she'd be let in. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he went to to like superficial because he went to someone who by the way isn't a climate and I just questions the um the word emergency in all of this that that's the important thing and you know one of the biggest fusses over the last few days has been the menu of COP26 yeah. which okay it has haggis and venison on it as, <laughs> as as you say Tom I mean they should really be feasting on crickets and you know um soya and whatever to, be, to set uh, an example at the FT's events I'm sure they're serving but but you know, is that really all this has to offer? And with all the resources pouring into it, all the money in the room at COP26, mm. you know, all the, supposedly all the, you know, the brains or the science in the room and all you can come up with is this. Indeed, we've had, we've discussed on this podcast previously that it's now, you know, technical solutions, important tech in terms of actual, the tech of creating better and cheaper and um, more sustainable energy is now second, comes second to doing this kind of um, superficial gesture politics. So the fact even, you know, would we really care if they got a train or a plane up there? Yeah, yeah. As long as they were actually coming, if they were coming up, that conference came up with some serious innovation into how to make the world a greener and more plentiful place. But you wouldn't care about that. But the fact is there's still the only real thing that's come out of COP26 is, oh, you know, a bunch of us are going to stop using coal. We knew that already. There's been nothing new come out of it apart from this sort of sniping about people's personal preferences or whether or not Boris Johnson stayed awake. I mean, to be fair to him, didn't he say we're like, you know, people have been joking five minutes to midnight or whatever. I'm sure he's tired. <laughs> but that, if that's the level at this is at, how are any of us supposed to take it seriously? Yeah, it's a good point on the, on the pledges. You know, they've talked about ending deforestation when the world is already greening and getting more forests. They've talked about stopping using coal when most countries, you know, signed up to that, really not using much mm. coal anymore. The key coal, you know, users like China didn't sign up to that particular pledge. Or the US. Or the US even. I mean, you mentioned the crickets, um, and that <laughs> seems to be a particular obsession of the media, um, the Financial Times, The Economist, and Sky News were pushing out this idea, which is unusual for a broadcaster because they're not supposed to put forward opinions normally. Mm. Uh, Tom, what have you made of the way the media has covered this? Because it, it seems as if there's not really any room for debate or that they're in fact sort of advocating for what is happening at the conference really. You do see that slippage where climate change is concerned. So as you say, you had Sky News, which has really embraced the whole kind of climate agenda. I think they have a daily climate show. Mm. Now you see them putting out discussion topics like, is it too late to solve the climate emergency or <laughs> crisis? And how loaded that is just yeah. seems to completely escape them. Similarly, I think um, if we're talking about people who should kind of try and stay out of politics, although in his case he never does, Prince Charles and his yeah. interventions. So he spoke at the opening ceremony and talking about the need for the private sector to come in and to sort this out, hailed from the podium by Boris Johnson as a visionary on these, <laughs> on these issues, given he's always been of a kind of slightly neo-feudalistic bent, um, Prince Charles. And again, I think it's because people act as if the climate issue is just as simple as being concerned about again just sort of protecting from weather events or it's yeah. really depoliticized when we all know that there's a politics at play i mean you can take 
even if you want to take as read what certain people are making claims about in relation to the climate, how you respond to it is entirely in the realm of politics, or at least it should be. I think the problem is, is that um, our public discussion about it and our media discussion about it is so incredibly limited. There's a kind of predetermined set of policies, more or less. And if you want to reframe the question about how are we, should we prioritise the climate or should we prioritise people's living standards? I mean, that just isn't allowed. That's just yeah. been even suggesting that, you know, maybe acting in the way that people are suggesting would be hasty and damaging. You get slapped with this idea that you, if, if you're not a climate denier, you're a climate delayer and that's yeah. almost as bad. It becomes this really slippery sort of censorious discussion. And that's one thing that's really difficult to break through because really what we're talking about here and what we spend most of our time criticising is we're not necessarily talking about climate science so much as we're talking about the politics of environmentalism, the fact that the answer to the question for these people is always that we have to have less. Now, yeah. a lot of the world leaders, Boris Johnson in particular, really want to kind of suggest that it isn't this zero-sum game that, you know, all of this shiny green technology is going to ride to the rescue, but we all know that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, his own climate committee um, the Climate Change Committee, which advises the government, have chided him for re for relying too much on, you know, hope hoped for in the future developments in, you know, carbon capture and storage and all the rest of the things which just haven't proven themselves just yet. So I think that's the problem is that the debate, and you see it in the media and you see it in general, is just so limited. And again, the poli policy prescriptions are so um, just predetermined that people almost don't realise that they're making quite political statements when they should in the case of the media, certainly be a lot more objective and unbiased in the way that they talk about these things. Definitely. I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast about some of the costs of the kind of net zero transition for a country like the UK, but it's become, given this is a global summit, we should probably talk a bit about what it means for the developing world. And it's quite clear that, you know, India has signed up to this 2070 pledge, which is, you know, net zero in 50 years time, effectively. <laughs> no one who's signed up. <laughs> Modi's not going to be alive by the time uh, that, that comes around. Um, you know, India's been chastised for this. Um, Russia, China are being chastised. Uh, President Xi is not at the meeting at all. President Putin isn't either. I mean, what do we make of that dynamic? Because there's something a little bit unseemly about that. Yeah, I mean, unseemly is a polite way of putting it. I mean, you now have a discussion about, uh, you know, have a situation in which um, big Western players are deciding the fate of, you know, I mean, Russia's not a small country, but, you know, developing nations which have no political, no necessary political power. You know, there's a kind of discussion in particular about the sort of the beauty of countries in Africa and the way in which people live there and how it's, you know, you have people, you know, Greta Thunberg and others talking about the Industrial Revolution as this horrendous period in history and that how we've all kind of fallen into disrepute in the UK and in other Western nations and couldn't we, and basically all of that is like, it's like the noble savage. It's yeah. like talking, it's an incredibly colonial way of um, discussing the developing world. And it also is like a kind of almost wearing Western supremacy as a badge of honour. It's like, because we are in a position historically to be able to make these decisions, we will now decide your fate. I mean, it's a, and it, we've mentioned several times on this podcast, the issue of 
democracy and how in particular things like COP, I mean, COP26 is the perfect example. It's like the most undemocratic thing to take place where, you know, you can't get in if you're an ordinary punter and it's being held in Glasgow amid all these strikes and stuff. And it's, it's like glaring in your face, the undemocratic nature of it. But the global discussion about democracy, I mean, why is it that Boris Johnson or Joe Biden or Angela Merkel or any of these big political players would get to decide the fate of someone living in a village in Nairobi or indeed living somewhere in Pakistan. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's incredibly unfair. And it's what everyone who in other discussions about, oh, you know, Western imperialism talks about in a superficial way. This is what it looks like in the 21st century. I mean, the the India example as well just really rounds that over. You know, you've Mm. got a lot of people expressing regret that an Indian prime minister has failed to meet the demands of a British prime minister to reach (laughs) net zero in in a timely fashion. And Rob Lyons wrote about the so-called kind of climate bad boys on mm. Spike this week, so particularly China and, and India as well as others. And he just makes the point that obviously China and India have made a lot of economic strides in recent years, much of it powered by fossil fuels, obviously. But what Rob did was he looked at the GDP per capita, and even despite all of this progress, it's like 19,000 for China and it's about 7,000 for India, UK and US, it's like 47 and 68 respectively. Like they've still got a hell of a long way to go in order Mm. to enjoy the sorts of living standards that we've taken for granted in the West for a very long time. So to get into this really unseemly neo-colonial, as you say, sort of spectacle of just kind of admonishing them for daring to try to meet the aspirations and needs of their own people, as much as those two countries have their problems... It's really unpleasant, definitely. And they're trying to do it in the way that we did it. (laughs) And we're saying that's not acceptable now. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Let's move on to uh, events in America. There was a huge upset in Virginia over the race to become governor. The Republican Glenn Youngkin won a surprise victory. Um, in, a, in a state essentially that Joe Biden won comfortably only a year ago in the presidential election. He won by 10 points. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main focus of Youngkin's campaign was education, which is an unusual thing to focus on in uh, in any kind of political race, really. It's not, a, not normally a big, hot election topic. But Tom, do you want to explain why education was so central to this? So it's become it's become the first kind of electoral test, albeit a kind of statewide electoral test, of this um battle that's been going on between this kind of nascent parents movement and various school boards. And the issue is basically the way in which kind of woke politics has started to kind of permeate school practice. It's kind of a combination of things. So a lot of these places, you know, the lockdowns meant that kids were at school for, you know, most of the past year in some cases. And so you have this situation where school is brought home Mm. and a lot of parents were seeing the kinds of materials that their um, kids were having put in front of them and seeing some of these kind of Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo type tropes make their way in to the curriculum and not in a way it seems like that was just about 
discussing these ideas amongst others but this you know this being something akin to sort of indoctrinating kids into all of these ideas around um, America being white supremacist Mm. or around the general kind of what as a catch-all term kind of gets referred to as critical race theory but it's probably even more sort of degraded and certainly a lot more widespread than that particular quite niche legal (laughs) academic pursuit and also, particularly in Virginia, there's been this new discussion around kind of gender-neutral bathrooms, which has stirred up and we've talked about in spikes in the past week. So you had Glenn Youngkin very effectively make that a kind of core part of his campaign and then Terry McAuliffe completely shoot himself in the foot, first of all, by saying that this uh, issue of critical race theory in schools was basically a right-wing conspiracy th- theory and a racist dog whistle I mm. think in his particular terms um, there was this quote which really did the rounds in one of the debates where he basically suggested that parents basically dictating what should be taught in school um, is is something that he doesn't want to see it was actually in the context of something a little bit different but ne- nevertheless it came to define that kind of core difference between him and Youngkin I guess and also the media it's been fascinating because they have just completely ref- done basically two things at the same time on the one hand it's just admonished these parents mm. um, and suggested that they basically are either just racist or they're just gripped by a conspiracy theory that doesn't actually exist. And then this other thing, which is to say that, um, well, critical race theory just isn't the thing. This is a complete myth. This is completely yeah. made up. Again, McAuliffe made this point, despite the fact when he was last governor in Virginia, his own Department of Education instructed schools to, quote unquote, um, embrace critical race theory. This is something that Christopher Rufo um, found out in the course of the recent weeks of campaigning. And so what you see here is something that I think we're going to see more and more is that wokeness just cannot survive democracy. Like as soon as you have an opportunity in which the issues are live and in which the election is really polarised those subjects, um, you see a genuine pushback. As you say, Joe Biden won this state comfortably. Um, Now it's gone to a Republican, I think, for the first time in about 12 years. So it's really, really significant. And what's amazing is that not unlike the meltdown after Trump's election or various other elections that haven't gone the kind of democratic establishment's way in recent years, you just have outright denial that this is a problem, smearing it all as just racism, despite the fact that you see in reports that there's many um, black and Hispanic parents who are really concerned about this as well. So it just shows that the Democrats have a real problem where this kind of thing is concerned, because not only are they not on the side of a lot of ordinary people on these questions, but as soon as they receive that admonishment from the voters, again, the reflex is to say, you're wrong and you're probably racist. Yeah. And that playbook hasn't worked very well for them in yeah. recent years. I, I like your point, Tom, about the wokeness not surviving contact with democracy. And in some ways, you get a sense that the people pushing many of these woke ideas kind of know that. Mm. I mean, a lot of this is done in a way that is designed to bypass parents quite clearly, you know, pushing these ideas through schools rather than having a kind of open debate about them. But also the the evasion, whenever parents complained about this, the evasion itself shows that they're not prepared to defend the ideas around that have been called critical race theory in public. They simply say, no, we're not teaching that. Or either that or, oh, no, it's we're just teaching about racism mm-hmm. or about race and about racism in history mm-hmm. or something like that. So there is a kind of, there, there is almost, knowingly or not, <laughs> there is a sense in which wokeness, the advocates of it sort of know they can't really get away with it or have they know they're not on the side of the majority. Yeah, or as you said in your column this week, Fraser, they're kind of playing this double game, which is there was this brilliant write-up in a, you know, brilliantly terrible write-up in mm-hmm. a Guardian US article where 
he was basically framing um, Youngkin's win as a the weaponizing of um, an anti CRT um, sentiment, and they talked. The article talked about the fact that this was really just a backlash to the Black Lives Matters protest, mm. as if it, as if you know. Like you said, it was a really specific campaign about education and about teaching kids. This wasn't just like a nebulous feeling, mm-hmm. a sentiment that he picked up on in general society. It was a very specific and targeted area of policy and area of politics in relation to what happens with kids in schools. And the article went on to talk about the fact that this was really just about, you know, a backlash to more minorities being visible in America. Yeah. And that's the, you know, on the one, like you say in your article, on the one hand, they say critical race theory is really specific it's re- you know it's not being taught everywhere it's a kind of it's a theory and then on the other hand the article said well they're lumping things like anti-bias training in with this it's like that is critical <laughs> race theory. Yeah, yeah. that's if you're talking if you're talking to kids about race that's great that's fine people have been doing that for years actually and schools have been pretty good about that that's why we don't ban harper lee or to kenna mocking but it's why we teach Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain, because we've talked to kids about the issues of race. That's very different from saying, and what Youngkin picked up on, that there are areas of education which are no-go zones. So you cannot deny your white privilege or you cannot question whether or not there's a difference Mm. between you and your, your, your black friend and your white friend. And But the thing is, this isn't just actually about education because really what this whole discussion and that you know republicans can get a bit silly and can do the whole kind of like their indoctrinating our kids thing but the thing about this particular issue of critical race theory is that it does seem like a very obvious if not indoctrination willful kind of blinkering of kids to wider discussions about politics and you see it play out outside of the classroom in universities and then now in workplaces where you have all of this training being brought in and it gets people's backs up because basically what it's saying is if you don't buy into our position Mm. you are a bigot and Mm. a racist and so then that's not a backlash that's a very normal position to have in a world that is a lot of the time seeming like it's going mad and it's it's interesting to hear uh, Youngkin defending his campaign against critical race theory using the Martin Luther King line essentially Mm. which would be our defense you know which would be how we would argue against it as well that we don't want to see the world through race Mm. yeah but now if you refuse to see the world through race then you're seen as part of the problem Mm -hmm. well that's what's so fascinating because people are trying to present this almost as like some sort of really dirty low old-fashioned kind of racist republican campaign in which Mm. you you know you race bait and use this as an issue people are trying to kind of like conjure up that kind of caricature the boot is entirely on the other foot as far as I'm concerned in relation to this stuff these people are defending even though they're kind of sometimes pretending that it doesn't actually exist a sort of practice and a sort of ideology, which again is being pushed uncritically in certain sectors. And as many people, Chris Rufo is one of the you know, most prominent among them, have exposed actual examples of this, um, which encourages kids as young as like kindergarten to think racially, to think of themselves as divided up, as kind of irredeemably separate groups with different interests set against each other. It's a historical stain that will never go away. I mean, mm. if anything's reviving racial thinking in America at the moment and doing so with the nod and approval of the establishment, it's not 
these kind of this parents movement yeah it's the people that they're railing against definitely well the parents movement have been essentially people have called for them to be treated as domestic terrorists <laughs> that's which, the level which seems of- to be the sort of democratic establishment's answer to everything it's also just in the like in more broadly discussions about how you know racism in society versus in the classroom the thing that was so terrible about that channel four program the school that ended racism oh yeah or, was, this is about the british example the, the british school example of it but they've had theory. similar you know similar discussions in america is the idea that as you say that this stain of history follows mm. children from birth right up into you know that's kind of inescapable but the whole thing that was you know like and you know my favorite film east is east is in uh, the uh, play out of it now and it's all back in the news then that really successfully looked at the way in which that generationally things change mm. so actually just even if there is racism in your home if your parents have a certain view or if your parents have suffered from racism when you come into school and you're with you know, young, fresh, innocent kids who are of all different backgrounds, but you're all on an even keel because you haven't had a life and you Mm. haven't had experiences. You're new to the world and you then develop different perspectives to your parents. I mean, that's, that's what has happened culturally. That's about, that's what generational shift is about. You don't, you don't just kind of live and breathe the values of the of your home or even the values of society you you find your own views and you can only do that if you embrace the idea that kids are blank sheets Mm -hmm. that you that don't come with any preconceived ideas and the problem with critical race theory and all this obsession with race is that it pretends like kids are already loaded with all this stuff and what you've got to do is kind of force it out of them and actually what's happening as you say is the opposite the boots on the other foot it's like instead of embracing the fact that kids are open to everything and that as a teacher you're meant to be able to shape them in some kind of way or at least give them the tools to shape themselves it's now like you've got these horrible things that you have to moralize and you have to it's like a dirty sponge that you have to clean and that's a really dystopian way of and that's why the parents are reacting it's like my kid is not a racist Mm. that's a terrible thing to say about a kid don't say that and so it's a very basic gut instinct that this is wrong just white fragility (laughs) but um, even on the basic kids but it's probably also worth just saying finally on the on the virginia election and the fact that at the very same time that you had all these commentators saying this was another example of white lash this is white supremacy and all the rest of it the lieutenant governor who was elected a republican winston sears a uh, black American woman of Jamaican extraction originally, mm. uh, a curious beneficiary of white supremacy, it seems <laughs> like. So I think that really, again, gives you an indication of how full of it yeah. these people are, to be frank. The Spiked Shop is open for business. You can get your favourite Spiked slogan on a T-shirt, hoodie, mug or more. So why not treat yourself or treat a friend who has good taste to some epic Spiked merchandise? Get ban nothing, question everything on a sweatshirt. Get cancel cancel culture on a laptop sleeve. Or get love Europe, hate the EU on a tote bag. Support Spiked and look great at the same time by visiting the Spiked shop. You can go to spikes-online.com and click the red shop button in the top right corner. Or you can get there directly by going to spikes-online.com forward slash shop. And finally, let's talk about Terry Gilliam, his play that he's directing, Into the Woods, supposed to be at the Old Vic, but it's been cancelled. And allegedly this is because the staff at the Old Vic were upset about Gilliam's comments on trans, on diversity uh, and on Me Too. 
what do we make of this? I mean, it seems like another arts worker staff revolt <laughs> <laughs> against mild opinions, essentially. Well, that's what it feels like. Like as you say, there was this report in the the Stage um, website um, which suggested that this unrest from staff led to this being canned. I mean, this was a pretty big production by all accounts from what yeah. I can tell. Was at the Old Vic? Apparently, they'd already sold thousands of tickets. Stephen Sondheim had approved of what Terry Gilliam wanted to do with the performance, um, but because of this disquiet, oh, and as you say. Terry Gilliam has expressed these views in a slightly blunt fashion, but these are not beyond the pale things no. to say. I mean, on Me Too, he said that whilst he hated Harvey Weinstein, he felt that it turned into a bit of a witch hunt and yeah. perfectly decent people were getting caught up in it. On the Again, he's kind of taken a pop at the idea of white privilege and kind of gender self-ID. He told an interviewer for The Independent, who was clearly very unimpressed <laughs> by the, the write-up that, you know, he's transitioning to being a black feminist, a black lesbian or something yeah. like this. It's a kind of, you know, just a blunt joke sending up the whole idea of self-identification. Apart from maybe the, the way in which they're expressed, these are things that a lot of people think. And yet there's no space for even the presence of this man in mm. this particular institution. And as you say, we've seen this uh, with the Netflix walkout recently. We saw it at Hachette last year, the publishers of um, a new um, JK Rowling book with the staff were threatening to down tools over it. Uh, Jordan Peterson's publisher, they had this in Canada, they had this big kind of teary town hall meeting because they were mm. so upset that they were publishing this slightly kooky self-help guru's latest <laughs> book. Um, and it's, yes, it's an increasing trend. Um, mm. And one of the things I think is interesting about it is that you're starting to see companies capitulate to it more, even in a situation where you would assume that the kind of economics were such that they would lean towards just sticking to their guns. But yeah. as we saw with the Netflix walkout where um, Ted Sarandos, I think his name is the um, kind of chief executive, originally stood by Dave Chappelle and then started to kind of soften a little bit. Here we have a situation where they've just completely capitulated. I mean, yeah. they brought Gilliam in and his co-director in for a meeting to talk about the culture and values of the institution and then basically decided that it shouldn't go ahead. So it's, it's an interesting case, I think, and probably a sign of more things to come is that, you know, these staff revolts really can chalk up some successes over, as it's worth stressing, pretty mild opinions yeah. <laughs> expressed by the, the person in the crosshairs in that respect. I mean, Ella, the theatre historically has been a place where you can be probably more pro provocative than you can be in film and television Um you know, something that escapes the censors mm. uh, of the government, at least since the since the 1960s and 70s in this country. What what are we to make of this? That actually, these are normal opinions that are now beyond the pale. But even if the thing is, it's even if they weren't normal opinions. Yeah. Even if he actually had gone full transphobe and had said that Harvey Weinstein was his best mate and that you know mm. he didn't care that women were being groped or something even if he had his own his own personal moral beliefs were completely unaligned with a normal society like artists and art and people who create art are weird and they often have weird and out there views and we know that I mean I could, you could sit here and list uh, from Picasso to Althusser to lots of people who had you know extremely immoral views and and had w way, and, way and behaved immorally uh, as yeah, well <laughs> and, were, and were way outside the boundaries of acceptable behavior but they were fantastic artists and that you know I think it that whole kind of division between the art and the artists 
you know, people talk about it a lot, but we would rarely talk about how important it is to be able to make that distinction between what, who a person is and what they produce. Mm. And if this was, you know, we would defend his right to put it on, even if it was a play all about me too. But the fact that it wasn't, but that this mm. is a production that yeah. has nothing to do really with, definitely nothing to do with his views of, on me too, or on self ID tells you that there's something else going on here. And, you know, it's also just the hypocrisy of it makes me sick because you know that in these institutions, they have been working with individuals as it happens, you know, posh men for many, many years who are like incorrigible assholes. You know, people in theatre tend to be unpleasant. They don't treat the, the stage hands well. You know, it's like a trope. But when Allegedly. It co- a le- yeah, but I mean, okay, I'm not Good naming names. names no, but, no, 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 it's not just bad behaviour. There are genuine political issues. Then it's then there's no tolerance for it. I mean, if you are, it's it, if you are working in an institution, whether you're working at Netflix, whether you're working in a theatre, mm. you do not get to decide what the punters watch unless you've been appointed mm. as the chief critic or the moderator or the curator. If you're just the staff, you don't get to you know you don't get to say what's put on the shelves at Tesco. Like there is a genuine sense in which how about audience choice here? Yeah, that's been thrown out of the window as well. Mm. Yeah, completely. And and Tom, what do you make of the, you know, Terry Gilliam, obviously most famous for being a member of Monty Python, mm. Life of Brian, their most famous film, scandalised the church. Mm. Is this just the new church that he's scandalising now? Well, it feels like that, definitely. I mean, what these um, staff members who have, you know, gone to the wall over this, what they're basically asking for is for all of the output of the old Vic to be subjected to a kind of work purity test. And it's yeah. a work purity test, which isn't even about the work itself, as mm. you're saying. It's just about the individuals. So utterly bizarre. I mean, when these things happen, there is sometimes an attempt to try and suggest that, you know, whether it's a Teddy Gilliam or Dave Chappelle, these people are the ones with the power here. Yeah. You know, you've got these kind of rank and file members of the institution or the company who are, you know, striking a blow for not wanting their places to be an unsafe environment or a place in which trans people won't feel comfortable, all the rest of it. Aside from the kind of patronising elements to all of that and the weird suggestion that, you know, a lot of these people, like Dave Chappelle doesn't work in the Netflix offices. <laughs> you know, it's an absurd suggestion that just by putting his stuff out there, that they're making people feel unsafe in any way, shape or form. But I think one thing that's worth pointing out is not only, as Ellie was saying, is that they're effectively kind of, again, kind of denying choice to the audience or saying that they shouldn't be exposed to this kind of material, which is a wrong-headed position anyway. But also they're playing a really dangerous game because mm. if you're basically empowering your employers to rule on what isn't and isn't acceptable to say and to think, and that that goes right up to the top, so even a big bankable name like Terry Gilliam can be subject to this and cancelled as a consequence of that. You think that's not going to happen to a stage hand or yeah. someone like further down the pecking order? So that this attempt to present this as something actually kind of bottom up and sort of positive in that respect, I think is ridiculous because you're just handing the power and moral authority to your employers to rule on what is and isn't acceptable to say and to sack people as a consequence, basically. And if it can happen to Terry Gilliam, it can definitely happen to you. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.